Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As U.S. debt servicing costs soar, rising concerns over America's borrowing to rebuild America's crumbling infrastructure, invest in new technologies, and build military capabilities to deter adversaries and support allies and partners. President Biden has pledged $105 billion in new spending to support Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. This as Ukraine employs ATACMS missiles. But Washington is diverting ammunition destined for Ukraine to Israel. Boeing strikes a deal with its beleaguered suppliers, Spirit Aerosystems, and takeaways from the National Business Aviation Association's annual jamboree. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are two of our team, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm, uh, Agency Partners, uh, and the third of our musketeers is off again on vacation. Ron and Richard, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here, Margo. It really wouldn't be a weekend without it. Absolutely. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Uh, indeed. Thanks very much uh, to uh, you both. Ron, uh, walk us through uh, the uh, overall uh, sort of how the group performed on uh, markets with a lot of stuff going on in the background. Now, um, you know, there's an ongoing war in Ukraine. There's a new war in the Middle East as Israel uh, works to punish uh, and indeed eradicate Hamas after its deadly terror attacks on Israel that killed 1,500 uh, it is the war is also uh, at this point exacting, exacting heavy Palestinian uh, casualties in Gaza uh, as uh, negotiations are showing some progress. Uh, right. Hostages are being released. Walk us through how all of these sentiments, including President Biden's, you know, seeking another hundred five billion dollars uh, is uh, is shaping uh, how folks on the street are thinking about the future. Yeah, so probably the biggest indicator for the week was the VIX index. And just to remind everybody, that's that uh, index of fear on the market. Um, you know, the VIX was up over, uh, it ended the week about 22. Uh, and just to remind you, I mean, just a couple podcasts ago, it was at 13, right? So the VIX has been moving higher. It's it's almost at its highest for the year, but but not quite. Uh, and, and that's just a measurement. I think, you know, that's a, that's a measure of, you know, volatility, but also kind of fear in the market. Um Surprisingly, given what's going on in the, in the Middle East, you know, WTI crude and in the week at 88, that's, you know, been roughly where it's been lately. You know, uh, Brent crude, 92. Um, U.S. interest rates uh, close the week out, the 10-year, that's what everybody watches at 4.9%. We've been hovering around five now for quite some time, right? So you know, there might be headline fear, but it's really not reflected itself in interest rate markets about, you know, U.S. debt and so on and so forth. Um, the S&P was down 2.5% in the week. Uh, you know, there's a pretty good indicator of you know, what was going on in the market. Boeing was down about the same, 2.5%. The defense names were down less. Northrop was down uh, just under percent. Uh, Raytheon Technologies was down a little less than a percent. Lockheed Martin, Martin excuse me, reported this week, um, and they were up a little bit. They were up uh, less than a percent. I guess the real equity mover this week was Spirit Aerosystems, and we'll, we'll talk about that later and what, what happened with Boeing, but they were up uh, just, just a little bit over 27%. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of where we are. I mean, you know, given all the headlines and movements and another war breaking out and so on and so forth, it was a pretty mundane market in the week with, you know, with, with the index of fear 
drifting a little higher. <laughs> yeah, the, the fear index, which is a, a great way of putting a, a, uh, putting it. And it's interesting, the disconnect between sometimes, you know, what is being reported and what reporters are focused on and what uh, investors are focused on. Um, obviously, there's still continuing chaos. Um, we're looking at another government shutdown uh, in less than a month uh, when the money uh, runs out and we still don't have a speaker. How much is that weighing on uh, on folks there, right? Jim Jordan would have been worse because he did impose, uh, oppose more uh, defense spending, had, uh, you know, didn't support Ukraine funding as well. He doesn't appear to be in the picture anymore, having withdrawn on Friday. Um, what's what's the street's view of what's going on on Capitol Hill or or maybe what's not going on on Capitol Hill? Yeah, given all the global instability, right, I mean, you know, two, two regional wars going on um, and, you know, everything with you know, the U.S. and in, in the Indo-Pacific and so on and so forth, you would expect the defense stocks to be doing better. And I think one of the things that's been holding defense, the defense stocks back is investors just trying to scratch their head on what's going on on the Hill, what's it mean for budgets, will there be another shutdown, won't there be another shutdown, where are budgets ultimately going to go, you know, will the president get the 105 that he wants, because if he does, you know, a chunk of that goes to the defense budget, and you know, the defense budget growth would actually be pretty darn robust. Uh, and, and I mean, ultimately, that's going to all sort itself out, as we all know. I mean, it eventually does. But but I think investors are just like just trying to scratch their heads and, you know, make make sense of it all. And it's, you know, given all about you know the government volatility going on, it just makes that whole situation more difficult to to draw a conclusion, have an investment thesis, so on and so forth. Um, we don't have uh, Sash uh, on the program uh, today, unfortunately, uh, but give us uh, sort of a sense. Walk us through uh, uh, stock uh, performance uh, in Europe for the group. Yeah, I mean, Airbus was uh, down just a, just a bit, right? It, it, it Relative to the group over there, it, it outperformed. It, it was down um, just about half a percent. Uh, Safran was down almost 3%. MTU was down almost 3%. PAE Systems uh, was down surprisingly almost two percent, uh, kind of given given everything that's going on. So it you know it seems like in the European markets that you know that's this same index of fear, if you will, was was rising this week too. Uh, Richard, before we uh, delve into earnings, Ron uh, mentioned uh, Boeing's deal with Spirit. Walk us through what the deal uh, means, right? I mean, we've been talking about the challenges. Uh, unfortunately, the company has had the pressures it's under to perform. It once upon a time was part of Boeing, uh, and it was uh, spun out. And you know, we all on the program decided uh, discussed you know the importance of it probably being back in Boeing. You know, Sash giving some examples from Airbus uh, as well. Walk us through the deal and what it means. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think it was a necessary move, a very necessary move. It's just that perhaps for political reasons, maybe water under the bridge, whatever, it couldn't happen unless somebody that Boeing uh, knew well was in charge, and hence Pat Shanahan. Um, it looks as though the deal is, uh, well, it involves an upfront cash um, injection to allow Spirit to make the ramp on the 737 MAX to bring on the, the people and machines needed to achieve that goal. Uh, the penalty there is that it includes a ramp down on 737 MAX chipset pricing in the long term, presumably uh, as they move up the production curve and, of course, increase volumes that will allow them to 
lower their costs. At least that's the assumption. But who knows? It might have to be revisited. It also allows for an upward repricing of 787 ship set content from Spirit, which uh, is sort of the opposite story. Basically, that's already achieved all it's going to achieve, probably, in terms of learning curve, in terms of process, in terms of volume. They've gotten to where they can possibly get. So they're, you know, if they weren't profitable and they weren't, they need to be made whole. So clearly it's a it's a recognition of reality that was possible um, because of the, shall we say, better intercompany dynamics of the leadership change at Spirit. Uh, you know, Tom Gentile was dealing with an awful lot, but part of it, of course, was just a kind of a legacy of bad blood between Spirit and Boeing. And with Pat Chan in, and now in charge, that's uh, that's they're clearly able to sort of think out of the box and, and come to a rational conclusion about what needs to be done. Ron, uh, your sense on all of this before we go to earnings? Yeah, I mean, it's a step in the right direction. Clearly, um, I would look at it as more of a short-term fix than a long-term fix. Uh, and and there's been nothing done on the Airbus side, right? And it's easy to forget that, that Spirit has large contracts with Airbus, particularly on A350. So we have to see where that all goes. Um, Spirit's ultimate future, I think, is still still quite uncertain. Uh, one of the big risks when um, Spirit went public was what happens when 737 goes away. And, you know, that's in the cards now. Um, some of us would argue not soon enough. Um, but ultimately, I mean, is 737 going to be around past, you know, sometime in the mid to early 2030s? Probably not. Um, and it's an important program for Spirit. And so when you think about Spirit's terminal value, it's, you know, what 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 happens next on on that front? Um, you know, will 787 ever be as profitable as 737 was for them? Probably not. Um, will uh, A350 be? Probably not. Uh, their aftermarket business is quite limited. They do have a defense business, but it is defense structures. Um, it is probably profitable, but it's a question as to how profitable. So still, I think there are you know long-term questions about you know spirit and what happens to it um, and its its ultimate future that still are out there. Uh, and your price objective, right? How does all of this affect your price objective on Boeing? Uh, as well as, uh, right, I mean, you guys also, I think, had an October update uh, on the company in terms of deliveries. Most investors we're talking to really are focused on, you know, what are they going to deliver for this year? And what's their, you know, their quote unquote guidance outlook going to be uh, uh, for next year? And, and that's what they're basing their investing on, um, which is, I mean, I think sort of, you know, the sad reality of how most people invest today. Where you know ultimately will Boeing be able to get to you know the high forties or fifty uh, per month on seven three sevens? Yeah, they will, right? I mean, the airplanes will get delivered, but a lot of the investment community isn't isn't thinking about it that way. They they tend to have a more myopic view on it. Um, so you know, and and as a result, kind of that impacts how we have to think about you know valuations on companies and so on and so forth. But so we we you know ended up taking our valuation down on delivery slipping, but um, longer term, I mean, you know the as Richard has pointed out um, very adeptly many times, you know, aerospace, aerospace and defense currently are sort of in this upside down world where um, demand massively is outstripping supply and capacity at this point to meet that supply. So, um, you know, as a as a company delivering to that market, that, that's actually an OK place to be. Right. I mean, it's right. much far better than the, than the reverse. 
Um, and a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors their daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Richard, did you want to add anything uh, to that before we move uh, to uh, earnings? Not that much earnings, but important earnings. Uh, and then talk a little bit about the $105 billion and ATACMs and everything else. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, not much to add, just that also, you know, we're relearning to live in an inflationary environment. You know, I mean, remember the rather contentious uh, agreement between Spirit and its labor force back, I believe, in June, where they offered like 38% or something, and the, the workforce went on strike and I think eventually got 44 over four years. And that's being repeated all across the industry. So on the positive side, as Ron says, yeah, you know, the markets are strong. And it's a question of production, but the added complication is right. that everyone's cost are rising. And a big part of this agreement, of course, is a, a way of allowing Spirit to deal with these costs. The markets are strong in this one. Uh, the um, uh, Sorry, I thought that would be an amusing Star Wars, Star Wars. reference that apparently yeah. fell horribly flat. Uh, no, but- I liked it. Thank you. Uh, But, you know, if you're having quality escapes, right, which I think is actually one of the most absurd and idiotic phrases I've ever, you know, oh, look, it escaped. Uh, mm, No, you screwed it up. Right. This explains why the company is willing to pay good money uh, to be able to retain the talent, because God forbid your problems become actually exponentially worse if you don't have those people on the team um uh and 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 looking at them um, do do we have a, a progress report at all um on uh, uh quality efforts ron just just before we go to earnings i mean do we have an update on what the company is doing to make sure that these escapes no longer happen which well, has been part of the problem according to the company you know, fuselages that are coming off the production line have holes drilled properly okay good all right that's great um you know can i verify that no um are there other things i don't know right we just don't know and that's you know one of the things as an outsider looking in on you know a a tier one supplier or a supply chain that's as complex and in many ways as bespoke as aerospace is, is it can be frustrating so according to the company everything's cool um now when you look at uh, you know, aircraft that have been already, the big question becomes, all right, you've got aircraft and in inventory that uh, have to be fixed. You've got fuselages and in inventory that have to be fixed. And just let me remind everybody, there's there's a giant wine rack behind Spirit with like 70 or 80, 737 fuselages just sitting out there waiting to be shipped to Boeing. Well, they all have this problem, so they all have to get fixed. Right. Um, I mean, they're actually boat wings. I mean, they, they own them, but, you know, they're still sitting in Wichita. Um so, I mean, all that has to be worked through. And then then the other big question is, you know, the in-service fleet, right? You know, does the FAA offer some sort of waiver that says it's okay to be, right. you know, not type conforming? Or do these aircraft, when they come in on D-checks, have to get fixed? And my guess is that probably is what happens. And then who's right. on the hook, hook to pay for that? Um, I would uh, submit to people, it is really an extraordinary photograph. Check it out. These are not completed airplanes. They're fuselages. So you need a giant wine rack uh, to uh, store them. And and again, I mean, no 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 need to 
uh, sort of you know repeat this, but this is an airplane that's been in production for a long time, and that particular component has not changed all that much actually. Um, at the end of the day, uh, Ron, when it comes to earnings, there was one company, and then there was one, and it was Lockheed Martin. What did Jim Takelet uh, have to say, and what are expectations for everybody else who are going to be reporting in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, ex- expectations I think are uh, kind of a little bit all over the place, right? I mean, the the most common question I get from investors is. You know, why did the defense companies keep missing on margin? Um, and and if you look at you know what what Lockheed reported, uh, their missiles and fire control segment has a headwind from a margin perspective, right? So that just sort of kind of reiterates that that trend. And then the company also came out and said basically their free cash flow is going to be flat for the next four years. You know, given that you know defense is you know, the real focus on investing in defense tends to be free cash flow generation, that wasn't particularly welcome news. Uh, and then, and then the other area where investors are are focused is uh, tech refresh three on the F thirty five, and when that gets all sorted out, because until that gets sorted out, they you know, the U S government isn't taking any airplanes. I suppose they can deliver internationally. Um, and you know, as, as you know, Fargo, as we've had many discussions at some you know conferences recently, tech refresh three seems like it's going to take a while to to get sorted out. I don't know if that's fully appreciated by the market or not. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, the, the Lockheed uh, numbers were you know, kind of lukewarm, right? And that's, uh, I think, how the market, uh, you know, uh, absorbed them. Um, this week, we'll, we have uh, a mountain of earnings, just a waterfall of earnings happening. So it should be pretty interesting. I think the one that most folks will be focused on on Wednesday is Boeing. You know, what's Boeing going to say? What's their outlook? So on and so forth. Uh, and Spirit, too, right? Because this will be, um, you know, Pat Shanahan's uh, first uh uh, you know, shot at earnings as CEO, interim CEO of the company. Um, so I think you know this earnings season; those two will be the kind of the real, the real focus. Um, and, and then maybe the the third one would be Northrop Grumman because kind of all eyes are on B twenty one. You know, L right. You know, are they going to take a charge? Are they going to take a charge? So on and so forth. Uh, uh, Richard, uh, your uh, first, your sense on uh, tech refresh uh, three, right? I mean, there are folks who uh, think, okay, you know, this is taking, uh, costing too much money. Um, you know, there are challenges with the engine. We should be wrapping up the F thirty five program, uh, as opposed to looking at whatever combat system capability we're developing is going to be core to NGAD and anything else that comes. You know, I mean, there is a lot of commonality in terms of the capability there. Walk us through sort of your sense on where we are uh, on TR three, and then what do you expect to see from the rest of the industry when they report? Yeah, you know, obviously there's quite a few complications here on the production side, and you know, unlike most other people's production problems, uh, which revolve around supply chain considerations and everything from raw materials up to, uh, you know, tier one systems and structures. This one is all about uh, assuring the technology associated with TR3. And the numbers are pretty daunting, you know, going from 150 or so anticipated deliveries this year to just 97 and a market environment where everyone wants them. And if you could push a button and respond to market needs, you deliver, you know, two, 300 or something like that. It's pretty jarring. Uh, right. Now, in terms of getting back, the good news is, of course, that a lot of the cash that's coming in is for production rather than for delivery. So it won't be the complete bloodbath that some might fear when you go from 150 to just 97. A lot of these will be, you know, more completed than than not, and some will be completely completed. But um, 
you know, nevertheless, it's 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 pretty daunting. And they don't announce they haven't announced any plans to recover. It's not like ah, next year they can go from 150 to you know 200 because they make it good somehow. No, they're sticking with 156, and nobody really has any plans to ramp up further. So they're still being extremely conservative in terms of output relative to market needs. Um, that you know is obviously causing consternation among F35 customers. You know, you're implying that there might be a case for moving to a different horse. Um, and I'm sure if this were a, a peacetime environment, that's certainly something that people would consider. Like, all right, let's just, you know, skip a generation and go to NGAD and FAXX and whatever else. That's just not an option, given the state right. of the world these days. So I don't think there's any way forward, but forward, um, sadly. And uh, I don't expect any change. Maybe in the 2030s, we can have, you know, a conversation right. about how ultimate, what ultimate output will be. But in the here and now, that's what people are. That's what people are waiting I, for. You know, I mean, in in part of what part uh, because of how we did this, really. I mean, you know, there is one path forward, and it is forward uh, at the at this point. And recriminations doesn't get you anywhere, but you can re- reap a lot of benefits from the programs and the investments that were made on F thirty five, and that to me is is the key. Because all your future combat aircraft are going to have commonality, whether on sensors, uh, whether on materials, whether on manufacturing. So you're going to reap benefits of this uh, over, over the long term, uh, which is something which I've said for a long time. Um, uh, Ron, uh, President uh, wants $105 billion more in spending, $61 billion or so if memory serves correct for Ukraine, about $11 billion for Israel, the rest for Taiwan, and some for U.S. border uh, to help win congressional support. What's the sentiment on the street on that? And I want to get to production because we are struggling to build stuff now. And now we're raising that bar. There's another ally that's at war that diverted artillery shells and capability to the Ukrainians that are now making a U-turn and going back to Israel. We're trying to fill our own stocks. Walk us through what the sentiment on this is and whether or not we're going to be able to deliver and what we have to do if we're going to deliver um, so many weapons to so many people on such a short time scale. Yeah. So I think in terms of the president getting all of that, um, you know, the street is mixed. I don't think if you, you, you lined up 10 investors, some would say, yeah, some would say no. So I don't think there's a street consensus on if that's going to you know happen or not. And back to the point I made earlier, just given all the political uncertainty on the Hill, you know, what's it, what's it all mean? Uh, I don't think investors are so worried about interest rates, honestly, right? Um, but it's it's more around the political uncertainty and maybe what the perception of interest rates does to that political uncertainty. Um, and then in terms of actually being able to do it, you know, the, the number one thing that seems to me, right, and, you know, to be fair, right, you know, I bounce around the country talking at events and talking to investors and have an office in New York, right? So I'm not sitting in a, in a munitions factory. But what you hear from everybody across the sector, both aerospace and defense, and, and the conversations that we do have with suppliers and the various industry things we do, and, and not to speak for Richard, but I think he would agree with this, you know, the, the number one concern we hear is personnel, people, just having enough qualified craftsmen, craftspeople to do this, right? Because right? And when you look at uh, a lot of this, it's, um, um, you know, a lot of it's very, very, like I mentioned before, very bespoke in nature. It's, you just can't pull someone off the street and have them build a nuclear submarine, for example. It just doesn't work that way. And you can take that analogy and apply it to 
a lot of the product that is made across this entire sector. Um, so, you know, getting those people, training those people, retaining those people. And, you know, so to me, one of the things that really jumps out at me, if you want to do this and you want to try to do it on a time frame, you can't do it overnight, right? So that's, that's impossible. So, you know, if you do want to do things overnight, you have to try to maybe find alternative ways, alternative suppliers. One of the things that did come up on the Lockheed call was, you know, they're, they're looking at other suppliers, new suppliers, at least to them on um, solid rocket boosters. You know, one of those, you know, for missiles, obviously, uh, NAMO, uh, you know, the Norwegian company could be one of those, right? You know, I'm not saying they are, they probably are, but I don't know that as a fact. Uh, but it's the kind of company you'd look at. Uh, that would be an you know, alternative supply chain. That's one way you can get there faster. And then two is you just, you gotta, you gotta get people and you gotta you know, ramp them up and give them skill sets and all that sort of stuff. And that's, you know, to be fair, beyond the scope of any one company, right? That's gonna take some right. investment um, on a policy level to make it a priority to, to, to get the whole system working. We should be doing this stuff faster than we're uh, doing it. Richard, I'm going to come to you in just a second, but a quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co-host uh, with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, uh, Richard, anything you want to add on sort of like contractual dynamics and approach that we need to have to try to speed this. I mean, you know, on the one hand, there's by American rhetoric. On the other hand, it's by allied. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, the concern is what's coming out the factory doors. And at this point, you know, everything is, you know, we're going to be, you know, seeing the dividends in 2024. There are two allies who are in hot wars right now. Yeah, I mean, first of all, count me among the group that says we got to think in terms of alliances, because the one thing that distinguishes the U.S. defense industrial base and indeed a lot of our NATO allied defense industrial base from, uh, say, uh, Russia or China or France or anyone like that is there our ability to think outside borders and bring on the capacity that you know you find, whether it's in South Korea or Britain or uh, or, or Israel or Ukraine increasingly, you know, so I, I think that's essential. But also, you know, we need to remember it's very important for the Pentagon to think outside of the traditional modes of contracting, more emphasis on IDIQ, indefinite quantity contracts, more emphasis on long rate, uh, sorry, long, <laughs> full rate, long term MYP contracts, basically right. everything that multi-year procurement, multi-year procurement, MYP, uh, absolutely essential because that basically gives people the confidence needed to invest in the, in the capacity needed. So the sort of, you know, traditional year by year, we like you, we don't like you, you know, you'll be funded, you won't be funded. That's absolutely terrible from the standpoint of a production ramp up. So contracts are important is what I'm saying. Um, let me uh, take you. Uh, you're the, you're our war studies, right? In the in the absence of of Sash and his uh, British Army experience, uh, you are our resident war studies uh, man. Um, what's the impact of ATACMS been uh, on uh, Ukrainian operations? It looks like uh, they surprised the Russians. Uh, the administration has said. That's the reason why we didn't announce it. We, you know, and I'm all for the Russians getting hit in the head with something they didn't expect to see, uh, seeing as how they don't tend to run it by us before they do uh, something. Ultimately, what does ATACMS mean? And more broadly, what are the other kinds of capabilities 
that we need to be getting to our Ukrainian allies and partners. You know, they've got F-16s, but that's not going to be for a few months before it materializes. You know, we've sent over harms. We've sent over precision weapons. We've, uh, you know, we are now sending long range weapons. What are, you know, A, what's the impact of it? And what are the other things that should be on that $61 billion shopping list? Well, the bad news uh, is that there's no such thing as a silver bullet in this conflict or indeed in any conflict. Uh, and there's there's not even a series of silver bullets. Rather, there's a series of strategies and tactics that are enabled by technologies. And, you know, you see that very clearly with, with ATACMs. You know, we've known for many, many years that deep battle was an excellent idea. Gosh, in the 80s, I wrote my master's thesis on it <laughs> I mean, way back when. And what is old is new again. There you what go. What is old is new. We're, we're relearning things. And from the 30s, combined arms. Combined arms work. You know, it's right. not tanks. It's not got to have M1 tanks. It, no, it's the combination of tanks, mechanized infantry, airborne reconnaissance, uh, artillery, mobile artillery, cyber if needed, et cetera, et cetera, EW. That combination uh, gives you greater striking power. Now, from the standpoint of ATACMs, that was one of the key developments back in, you know, the the Army's embrace of the follow-on forces attack subconcept, the deep battle of the 80s that led, of course, to some uh, impressive victories in Gulf War One, and, and you know, would have if, if I think, if the Warsaw Pact had been around and attacked the West in the 90s. It was a fundamentally correct strategy. And the tools enabled, such as ATACMs, were also fundamentally correct for the implementation of that strategy, a deep battle, something that attacks everything from second echelon forces to uh, logistical nodes to communication nodes that really disrupts the uh, the enemy's warfighting ability. So I think ATACMs is a key tool of that, is a key enabler of deep battle. And, you know, again, deep battle, combined arms, the Ukrainians are doing it. it it's a real step forward. And I think things are going pretty well given the circumstances. Um, and uh, right, I mean, some extraordinary successes uh, the Ukrainians uh, have had. They've got Storm Shadow as well as the Scalp. They've used that to destroy ammunition, Tom's take out headquarters. Uh, and then they've got uh, commando units. Great story in the New York Times uh, about how these small groups are going uh, behind enemy lines into Crimea uh, and, and disrupting. Let me ask you a quick question on uh, the uh, Israel's uh, Hamas war. Uh, a lot of pressure from the United States. Let's get more hostages out. A big success. Uh, Qatar helped the United States free uh, two uh, American hostages that were being held. And it looks like there is a little pressure being applied by Washington uh, on Israel. Hey, slow down. Let's let's get some of these hostages out before this operation starts. What's Similar in both of these cases is the Ukrainians you know, are using jet skis to insert special operators uh, into Russian-held uh, occupied territory, just like, unfortunately, Hamas was using paragliders, uh, for example, to, to get over uh, the border. There are a lot of asymmetric means that are being used, hundreds of kilometers, up to 500 kilometers of tunnels under uh, Gaza. Uh, and part of the Gaza battle, uh, the Hamas battle plan is Kill, please kill lots of civilians uh, because every civilian you kill plays into my hands uh, effectively, uh, something that Israel is trying to thread. As you look at this, what do you see the next phases of this looking like? Because obviously the Hamas approaches are hostages, are holding hostages are going to delay this offensive. And the more civilians you kill Israel, the worse it looks for you, um, even if you know Israel is working hard to target uh, targets. I mean, what are... 
you know, as you draw on your education and experience and analysis, right? I mean, where do you see this going? Because as much as Israel wants to use precision targeting, there are limits to the precision targeting, or sometimes you're going to have to put bombs down and that will take out the bad guy, but also cause civilian casualties. Yeah. I mean, boy, first and foremost, you know, good tools can be used by bad people and good people. And what happened with uh, the initiation of Hamas's atrocities was a very effective use of combined arms, just as the Ukrainians are using combined arms. It was a poor man, poor man's combined arms, you know, paragliders for air power, uh, infantry, well, as infantry, uh, you know, chopping up the water and sewer system and turning those pipes into rockets for artillery and even using bulldozers for armor. It was combined arms in aid of a very, very evil goal of killing civilians. Um, yeah, you, what what can Israel do? Yeah, obviously, avoiding civilian casualties, that's, you know, key. I'm not sure there's a way out other than some kind of incursion to go after Hamas leadership. Uh, obviously, as you say, Hamas is going to make every effort to make the local population suffer. Hopefully, there's some kind of way forward that allows for the release of hostages, maybe the persecute the prosecution of the very bad people in Hamas who did this. I would love to believe in that world. And, you know, I'm impressed that the Biden administration is making these huge efforts at diplomacy. I'm not sure they, they can succeed. I sure hope they can. But boy, you're not against people who have any incentive whatsoever to uh, to compromise. Uh, exactly. So we've got about a minute left. Ron, uh, bring us up to speed. What are the key takeaways from NBAA this uh, year? Right. I mean, the business aviation sector was hotter than hot during the pandemic. Nobody was ever going to go back to flying commercial. Turns out that they did go back to flying commercial. Uh, anyway, walk us uh, walk us through what some of the key themes were. I know both of you were guys were, were there, but we've got about a minute. So if you guys want to split it up or one of you take it or the other, go ahead. Yeah, I think a couple of things, you know, the business debt market is cooling but it's still quite good right i mean you're coming off of a, a white hot period during the pandemic i guess there was a strong incentive to fly with your own germs right i guess we can frame it that way as opposed to <laughs> flying with everybody else's germs uh airline as you know you know airline access and you know uh, uh city pairs and all that was was constrained so uh and you're right you know some folks have gone back to airlines now, that being said, when you look at the industry, backlogs are strong, order activities happening, book to bill for the industry will probably be above one this year. Um, the business jet industry is constrained from the same supply chain things that are impacting you know, the, the large manu- you know, large commercial manufacturers and the, and the defense manufacturers, right? When you're, when you're the business jet industry said respectfully, you're sort of the tail, you're not the dog, right? So if, if all the big primes and big OEs are having problems, you're going to have problems too. I would frame it in the case of um, the, the business jet folks. It's actually, you know, the silver lining would be that's not a bad thing because typically what happens in general aviation, one of one or more manufacturers overbuilds, they build white tails. They always build white tails, but they build many white tails. They have problems, you know, on getting rid of them. They draw prices, and it can, you know, be not great for the end market. That really just can't happen now because the whole industry is constrained by the supply chain. Kind of what you hear, it's it's largely on the engine front, and, uh, and, and but windscreens is another thing that's popped up uh, and that sort of thing. So 
you know, when I, when I look at it from an investor perspective, investors have been kind of negative on it because the second derivative of growth or whatever, you know, the acceleration of growth, growth is decelerating, but the industry is still doing fine. You know, it's in, and, and the way I frame it is if you go back to, you know, a little bit of history here from, you know, the, the, the financial crisis until about 2018, you know, sort of had the lost decade, like nothing right. really happened. And then in 2018, things started to get better. You had a, you know, a, a true fundamental upturn. Then COVID happened, things went haywire. Now you're just getting back to sort of that growth trajectory you were on in 2018, which is sort of a more normal cadence of growth and so on and so forth. Uh, Richard, do you have anything you want to add before we part? Well, a complete agreement with Ron on the market and on the production side. The only thing I would add is that it was kind of um, a, um, well, unexpectedly slow show from the standpoint of uh, orders and new product announcements, particularly everyone or a lot of people were looking for a FlexJet Bombardier order that, uh, you know, sort of a follow on to the, the NetJet citation announcement from a month ago didn't happen, um, might still be in negotiation, didn't, didn't happen. There was a, a complete lack, almost complete lack of new product announcements of bunch of folks, assessed and included, announced, you know, relatively modest, actually quite modest updates to existing products. The only exception was the Honda Echelon, which is mostly new, but that'll take years to happen. But other than that, it was kind of a a tepid show from the, you know, industry confidence standpoint. Just add one point to what Richard said on the Honda Echelon, because that was actually what was fascinating about the Honda Echelon was the Echelon looks like a normal business jet, meaning the engines are where the engines are you know, people expect them to be not on top of the wing. <laughs> As opposed to on uh, top of the wing. <laughs> but hey, you know, there's really good engineering reasons why you put them on top of the ring, <clears throat> wing. But aesthetically, it's, you know, it's kind of odd. Um, so it looks like a more traditional business jet. Um, one, generally, better looking jets sell better. I know it's silly, but it's true. Um, and then two, and I think this is the most important, interesting thing. Um, the Echelon is not using the GE Honda engine. It's using a Williams engine. Um, right. and, and I think that says volumes about maybe the applicability of the GE Honda engine, um, maybe being a point design and not having the flexibility to do anything larger. Uh, we're going to have to end it there, guys. Thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, look forward to having the whole team back on again next week. Thanks so much. As always, Vago. Thanks. Great to be out, Vago. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And a special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Tune in again tomorrow for our Week Ahead uh, program. Until then, hope everybody has a great day and a great weekend. And we'll see you again tomorrow. Have a great day.